toddler's ABCs. Athletics beyond coronavirus. Hillel Cutler's ABCs. Athletics beyond coronavirus. Hillel Ascribe Welcome to Hillel Cutler's ABCs, Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. I'm Hillel Cutler, a journalist who specializes in both healthcare and sports. In this era of the coronavirus and the precautions that are helping to save our lives by limiting the spread of the disease, shuttered sports leagues have reopened in limited form. I interview people who are exhibit A of this sports experiment, the athletes, the coaches, the broadcasters, and the executives. I'm very interested in the effect on fans. In most reopened leagues, few or no fans can watch in person. On this podcast, we discuss the very real here and now, and also the day after, when the lives that we prefer to live can resume, and when the sports we love return in earnest with fans filling the seats. I welcome your comments, including suggestions for interviews. Just email me at hk at hillelthescribecommunications.com. My guest today is Chicago White Sox coach Jerry Naren, who works with the team's catchers and more something he's well-equipped to do, having caught in the major leagues for eight seasons with the New York Yankees, Seattle Mariners, and California Angels. He's coached and managed for eight other major league baseball teams since his playing career ended in 1987. We previously spoke on this podcast last spring when he was back home in Goldsboro, North Carolina, one month into the coronavirus shutdown. He was about to begin his first season as the Red Sox bench coach. It turned out to be his only season there. Jerry Naren, welcome to Hillel Cutler's ABC's Athletics Beyond Coronavirus, or better yet, welcome back to the show. No, it's nice to be back. Always good to see you, and uh, uh, just thankful we're back playing and uh, getting on board with everything that's going on in the protocol world. Jerry, you, you went from a, a rebuilding club in Boston to a team that made the playoffs last year and is expected to contend this year in the AL Central. And you've, you've also taken on a brand new role. And it's so interesting that you're working under Tony LaRusso, who's, of course, a Hall of Fame manager, came out of retirement at age 76 after a 10-year absence. He has won, of course, three World Series championships. And in the next couple of months, probably in early June, he'll pass John McGraw, the legendary John McGraw, for second place in games won by any manager in baseball history. And I'm wondering what you, of all the managers you've, worked for each one has a unique contribution to your development what is it that you've gained in the first couple of months in spring training and in the regular season by working with him so far well you know just the the knowledge that he has and the experience he has has been awesome to be around just talking baseball uh he's a guy that you know early on it wasn't called analytics at the time but he was into a lot of uh uh, progressive things in baseball back in the early 80s. He was ahead of his time a lot. And uh, uh, I remember talking with Gene Mock one day in spring training when I was with the Angels. And I asked Gene who, the, you know, the best managers he had managed against. And he thought about it. And, he, you know, I thought he was going to say somebody like Walter Austin or, you know, Danny Murtaugh, one of these older guys, or even Sparky or Earl Weaver. And he thought about it and he finally said, 
the, the only thing he said was, you know, the young guy in Chicago might go by all of us. And that's all he said. And that was when Tony was still with the White Sox and uh, Gene proved it correct. But uh, Tony's still very, very knowledgeable. He's still on top of the game. Uh, and the one thing that, uh, you know, that has really stood out is the intensity that he has every day from day one of spring training. He reminds me a lot of Billy Martin in the way that he manages and the, the urgency he has every day with the, the games, even in spring training. What, what do you think Mark meant? I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, this would have been 85, I believe, 86. It may have even been 86 before uh, Tony got fired here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. But he had won the division in 83 with the White Sox. I think the thing that really stood out to Gene was that he was willing to ask questions to, to experienced managers and to try things that different managers would, you know, try and, and uh, even take it beyond. But I, I know there was things that Billy did in New York that Tony still does today and things that Gene did that, you know, Tony does today. But Tony was, you know, uh, really got ahead of the curve, I think, with the bullpen and bullpen usage and, and having a closer for like a one-inning closer. He was ahead of the curve in that because, you know, at that time, guys would, you know, uh, like uh, Goose Gossage and Sparky Lyle and Raleigh Fingers, these guys were going out there for two-plus innings a lot. And, and Tony was the first guy, I think, to really narrow it down to one inning and really get matchups. And Gene could just see the way that uh, uh, Tony uh, got involved with the game and, and really took control of the game, didn't just let the game roll by. And uh, I think that's one of the things that Gene liked. Well, I mean, you were such a young player when La Russa began managing. Do you remember anything that would have stood out to you as a young man at that point about somebody across the field? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, I was with the Yankees in 79. Uh, the, we, with the Yankees, the last game we played uh, it, before, the last game the White Sox played before they hired Tony was against the Yankees. It was August 1st in 79. Don Kessinger was a player manager for the White Sox. We beat the Yankee. I mean, we beat the White Sox on uh, August 1st and Kessinger got let go the next day or he resigned the next day. And Tony's first game manager was August 3rd, 79. And I, I tell people that Don Kessinger resigned because he figured if he couldn't beat a team with me catching, he better get out of the game. So I don't, but uh, it was the last, it was the, uh, also, the last game Thurman Munson played, I caught that night and he played first base. That's how, that's how I remember it so well. Right. And I remember, of course, on the previous podcast last year, we spoke a bit about your relationship with Munson and your having succeeded him, at least in the short term, the immediate short term after his death and what that meant to you. Um, so how did, how did it come about that you were signed by the White Sox this past winter? Uh, Tony knew that I, you know, wasn't working. And, you know, it seems like I've res uh, retired about three or four times and I keep getting, somebody keeps dragging me back in. 
As a matter of fact, I wasn't working in 2016. That's how I got involved with the uh, Israeli WBC team in the qualifier that year. And uh, thankful to have that experience. But uh, Tony knew I wasn't working and, and wanted me on his staff. And uh, that, that's really how it happened. But I mean, how did you guys cross paths before that? How did you know each other professionally? Uh, just competing against each other. And uh, I don't know, you know, I, I've never been somebody that that goes across the field and, you know, uh, fraternizes with the opposition. I'm kind of old school and, you know, just take care of my team and it's our family and, uh, you know, say hello, but not really go out of the way to talk to other people. But Tony was a guy that I, you know, I would, I would, uh, search out at times just to ask him questions about things, different things that he did, the way he did it. And he always gave me time, which I'm thankful for. And I, I think part of that is that, you know, Tony knew that I, I played for people like Billy Martin and Dick Williams and Gene Mock. And, and uh, these guys all had respect for Tony. So it was easy for me to have respect for him and go to him and ask him questions. And he gave me time. I mean, do you remember anything that you asked him at, the, at that point? Uh, just different things about, you know, uh, the way uh, working his bullpen, just uh, things like uh, uh, the way he would play the infield in at times. He, he, he will do things, even today we do it, where a man on third and less than two outs you know, a lot of clubs will play the infield either in or back or whatever. Well, we might start our infield back and right before the pitch have our infielders come in just to kind of confuse the opposition. And uh, that's something Billy Martin did. And uh, uh, Tony really got that from Billy. Uh, like the bunk plays that we run, uh, I'd noticed early on how Tony ran them a little bit differently. And they were uh, bump plays like Whitey Herzog ran. And uh, just different things, just, you know, you, you, Tony, I tell you, he didn't invent anything. He'd learned it from somebody else and he just uses what somebody else uses, which isn't always the truth. Tony probably invented a lot of things that he's not gonna tell you, but, but in baseball, people that love the game will talk the game and try to, you know, uh, imitate guys that are having success. And that's one thing I tried to do. You know, it's a copycat industry and with Tony having success uh, like he did over about a 30-year period of time, you want to find out as much as you can about it. So how did, how did you and he come up with your, your role? Because you do more than quote-unquote well, only uh, out of all the ca uh, coaches on the staff, they didn't have somebody to work with the catchers, you know, individually. And uh, he just thought that would be a good fit. And that's what I did. And, yeah, you know, just with my experience, we have a couple younger coaches or you know, inexperienced coaches, and they wanted me to help them along too. So you're mentoring players and coaches? Yeah, pretty much. Oh, that's kind of an interesting role. Like, that I haven't heard of before at the major league level we're no, but you know today uh, the way everything's going with analytics they're, they're just running coaches up to the major league level that uh they may know the analytics but they may not know the the have the experience playing or coaching at the major league level and it, it's a different than at the minor league level 
the the season this year got off to a kind of a rocky start the very first series when the Washington uh, Washington Nationals Mets series was postponed because the Nationals break out of infections and since then things have kind of, kind of stabilized across baseball and at least two teams that I know of the Cardinals and Brewers have reported vaccinating many of their staff and players right the White Sox just announced that right after their home opener players and staff were vaccinated did you get vaccinated yourself yeah, I did uh, I, I didn't have really a problem with it it's been going on now for about three months or whatever since early January uh, and you know I had some apprehension early it's an experimental deal we don't know exactly you know and we probably may not know the results of it for a couple of years, but at my age, I had no problem with it. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, every, they want 85% of every club being vaccinated. And I think we'll be above that 85%. But, uh, uh, you know, it, I don't think I, hopefully this all goes away. We don't know, but I think, uh, it's shown that the uh, hospitalization rate and the death rate of people in their 20s and 30s, like Major League Baseball players, is is minuscule, minuscule. I mean, it's so I, I don't know. I, I think we just need to go on with this and uh, play the games and get after it. I think everything will take care of itself. But. Uh, uh, it's a little bit different than last year. I think there was a lot of fear last year, and right now people don't have the same fear. You know, last year, uh, Freddie Freeman had it. He won the Most Valuable Player Award. Uh, if they would have put a box score out, out you know, by, in the box scores last year, all the guys that had had coronavirus and were playing, people would have probably been very surprised at how many guys that had it and were playing and were having success. So... Uh, we'll see how it goes, and hopefully the fear factor in this will all disappear, and we can get back to our normal way of doing things. So, I mean, what was the atmosphere like in the dugout or in the locker room afterwards when it came time for people to, I don't know, line up or wait for their turn? No, people... you know, we talked about it, and there were some people didn't want to take it. You know, there's... Uh, the, the unknown part of it that it is uh, an experimental vaccine, but uh, for the most part, after the game the other day, they had it lined up where we could get it if we wanted it. Nobody was forced to take it, but uh, you know, I think everybody's doing everything they can to get back to normal and willing to try it. So, I mean, your colleagues on the coaching staff and the management, were they kind of more likely at that point to vaccinated than the younger players? Um, yeah. There wasn't, you know, a lot of pushback either way on this. I, you know, I didn't think it was that big a deal. Mm. What about your family back in North Carolina? What, what, where do they stand about getting themselves vaccinated? Um, you know, my, my younger children, I've had children that have had Corona and they, they had very little problems with it. I mean, it was like a bad cold for a day or so, and that, that's all the symptoms they had. So um, I, I don't know if any of them have been vaccinated or not. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know the answers to all this. It, I think it's, it should be an individual thing. 
if you want to get vaccinated, yes. If you don't, you know, that's your own business. And if you believe in it, uh, if you think it works, it's kind of like the mask. If you think they work, what difference does it make if somebody else doesn't do it? If I mean, you take care of yourself and, and let somebody else make a decision for themselves. If you believe in it and you think it works, what different, you know, if somebody else has got Corona, you're going to be okay. I, I think we're getting bent out of shape on a lot of this stuff. Uh, my wife, as a matter of fact, rode in a car with somebody that she didn't know at the time had Corona for like an hour and a half without a mask. They didn't have a mask. They tested positive the next day and she never got it. We don't know. We have no clue. I don't think in how this thing works. And a lot of the things they've come up with in this have been wrong. It seems like <laughs> and the policies change all the time. So we'll see. What's it been like this season having fans back in the stands? Even a limited numbers fans are back in the stands. And when you've been on the road and now at home, you've seen it. How was that struck you compared to last year when everything was empty? Oh, the last year was miserable. Uh, uh, no fans and they had to fake noise in the ballpark and that made it even worse. You know, it was a joke. And, uh, but having fans back is awesome. Uh, I'm ready for them to go ahead and open it up and let us, as many fans as want to come, that feel safe coming. Uh, I'm, I'm not real sure why, you know, if, if you feel safe coming, be responsible for yourself and let's go, let them in. Are, are, you, are you and the playing staff and coaching staff, are you allowed to interact with them? Are you allowed to sign autographs or talk uh, to them, anything like that? You know, last year they asked us not to, but I, guys have given autographs this year. I, I, um, I, I think uh, the more we know about this, the more we don't know about it. But I think guys aren't as, as fearful as they were a year ago. Mm. So what's it like being in Chicago? I mean, I know you the home the home schedule just started, so you've only been in the city a few days at this point. What are you looking forward to about experiencing in, in a major city like that? And let's uh, say outside of it. No, uh, you know, I've always loved coming to Chicago. It's a beautiful city. Uh, for us, we've only played two home games so far. It's, it, it's in baseball, it's a routine sport. You like getting going and getting in a routine with it. And over 162 days or 162 games, that, that routine really, you know, Gets, keeps you from really getting down into the grind of it. And uh, uh, we're just looking to get in that routine where we're playing every day. Well, one of your routines as you've become known in baseball, besides your baseball acumen, is your calligraphy. And one of your assignments has been to write the lineup cards for the managers you've been working for. And I, I'm, I'm curious where that started. Like, which manager got you going and whose idea was it and why? Uh, my first year coaching in the big leagues was 1993, and I was coaching for the Orioles, and Johnny Oates asked me, you know, just to do the lineup card. And uh, I had played for Johnny in Rochester the last year I played. Uh, I was kind of like a player coach that year in Rochester. And I noticed how he did his card. He was very particular about it and, you know, uh, very detailed with it. So I knew when he asked me, I had to do it really well. And uh, 
that was part of it. And the other part, I was raised with parents that uh, taught us to whatever we do in life, do it to the very best of our ability, uh, no matter how big or how small it is. And uh, I can remember my dad saying, if you dig a ditch, be, dig the best ditch you can possibly dig. And uh, so it's something as small as a lineup card. I want to make sure I did it to the best of my ability. And I just tried some different pins with it. And the, the uh, calligraphy pins, I don't know, it worked with it. And I uh, just started doing it. And uh, it's been fun doing it. A lot of people like it. And people ask me for them all the time. And coaches and players, if something happens, you know, I, I make a reproduction for them from the dugout card or give them the dugout card. And it's been a lot of fun. Is, is this something you've done at each at each stop in your coaching career? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, when uh, Ichiro came to the U.S. and played for the Mariners, I saw his name in uh, uh, Chinese characters. So I started putting all the Asian guys in Chinese characters. I do that. And uh, um, I think the Asian players appreciate it. And uh, I have a daughter who is an Israeli citizen. So I write Shalom in uh, Hebrew every day at the top of the card. You write that on every card, regardless of who's playing. I mean, not necessarily if there's a Jewish player in the game. No, I, I, it goes up there every day, just for a little uh, out of respect for my daughter, out of respect for the Jewish people, and out of respect for the country of Israel, or the state of Israel. Now, the, you, you visited her, I know, over the years. This year, of course, with the shutdown of, of society, of, we're not able to do that this offseason. What, what is it about the country that draws you? There's a, there's a number of things. Uh, uh, I I am a Christian, but I am a Zionist. I, I believe that uh, the Jewish people uh, are living in their homeland. Uh, I love that. I would you know. Uh, there there's just so many things. Uh, just being uh, reading the Bible and at. I've told people when you go to Israel, if you ever read the Bible, if the Bible might be in black and white, but when you go to Israel, it brings it out in living color. There's something about the the land there, the places there, that's just unbelievable. I you, you just cannot describe it. Uh, I've talked to to Jews, I've talked to to Christians, I've talked to Muslims, and there's something about Jerusalem and Israel, that's just close to everybody's heart. Have you been able to travel abroad on, in a baseball capacity at all to see what their baseball scene is like? Only in Latin America. And uh, uh, I haven't been to Asia. You know, that was one thing I was looking forward to with the Israeli WBC team was going to Korea there. And, you know, if we knew if we won there, we'd go to Japan. But uh, uh, I'm I'm happy with what's going on in Israel with baseball. I know Peter Kurz has been out front there with trying to uh, get people to play and get get the interest there and get a, get ballparks built there. And I just love that. I have a I have two grandsons now, but my oldest grandson is 11 years old and he's played since T-ball over there. And uh, I think the interest in Israel is growing and hopefully they can get a ballpark. I think they're trying to build one in Tel Aviv right now. 
and uh, that would be awesome. And uh, uh, just love the interest that uh, a lot of the young kids in Israel right now have for baseball. Of course, they're going to be in the Olympics for the first time in in Israeli history this summer in Tokyo. It'll be occurring during the Major League Baseball season, but I'm guessing that you'll have an eye on that as well. Oh, no question. And uh, I know there's some U.S. players that uh, uh, are Jewish that have, have uh, gotten Israeli passports or living in Israel and uh, really want to be a part of uh, the Israeli Olympic experience. And uh, I'm happy these guys are, are going to what I consider their homeland and becoming a part of Israel. Well, Jerry Naren, thank you for speaking with me on Hillel Cutler's ABC's Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. Let's hope that we can all put coronavirus behind us soon, and I wish you lots of good health going forward. Thank you, and uh, always a pleasure to, to talk with you, and please keep in touch.